I was initially calling tonight's study just new standards. and was going to include both for the Christian and both for the church, but I've decided to split the study because there was too much to uh, cover in on one occasion. So tonight too, it's uh, new studies, new standards for the Christian. Uh, in a fortnight's time, new standards for the Christian church. So Colossians chapter 3, we pick it up in verse 5. Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul exhorts, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now... You must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Christ is all and is in all. Let's end our reading there at verse 11. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these scriptures and we pray once again. For your help, Holy Spirit, come, we pray, and take the word and uh, apply it to our hearts and lives. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Using the Old Testament, the rabbis computed that there are 613 commandments. 248 positive commandments and 365 negative commandments. In effect, a no commandment for every day of the year. Now, of course, the danger there was legalism. It is important for us to understand that the Apostle Paul here is not setting down a whole new pile of rules and regulations for us to keep. I believe that these are not so much prescriptive as descriptive. That's important, please. They are not so much prescriptive as descriptive. They are illustrative of what Christ's life in you and me means, or should mean. If we profess Christ, then Christ by his Holy Spirit is lived out, is expressed, is manifest in certain ways. And Paul here is highlighting how these ways uh, or these ways are. They are moral teachings here that uh, do not go out of date as far as I'm concerned. They are principles 
that are earthed in the real world, principles for Christian living, illustrating what the life of Christ in the child of God really should look like. So, Paul starts off with an imperative in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. (coughs) This is familiar language for the child of God, is it not? For Christ, before Paul said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The implication there of Christ's teaching is we, we die to self. So Paul is just picking up that, that, that metaphor, if you like, that, that, that uh, analogy. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. When Paul speaks of earthly nature here, he is, I believe, referring to our sinful hearts. He then proceeds to give us a list, doesn't he? What does, what does it mean? What does it look like when we do just this, when we put to death our earthly nature? Well, he tells us. It is a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. I'll stop there for a moment. It is suggested that we can lump all these together um, and include them under the umbrella of just one Greek word translated here as sexual immorality. The Greek word, you'll be familiar with it I'm sure, is porneia, from which we derive our English word pornography. And so scholars suggest that uh, this word porneia is kind of a catch-all phrase for these kinds of sinful manifestations of the flesh. For instance, the Christian faith does not teach love, sex and marriage. Rather, it teaches love, marriage and sex. In that order, period. No grey area, no question marks, no if, no but, no perhaps, no maybe. It is what it is. Not because this is legalism, but because this is a natural manifestation of a person who's living the Christ-like life. Scripture condemns any form of sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage. Notice the passage says uh, that this is because of, it is because of such things the wrath of God is coming, he says. God will, my friends, hold us all to account one day. And in this area of, of porneia, sexual uh, immorality, um, This here is what the Christ life looks like. It's it's a life that is is walking with God in such a way that it is endeavouring to have a a pure heart before God and man, a pure life before God and man. The way we view and treat other people, whether of the same or opposite sex, uh, and whatever age is to be uh, with absolute purity. It's not easy these days, is it? (laughs) It is at uh, this point, of course, that many Christians 
want to start putting down all sorts of extra rules and regulations in place. And again, we're just in danger of doing as the Pharisees did. Remember, this is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. But what we tend to do if we're not careful is we, we become legalistic. We say, if you're going to live a life uh, of, of sexual purity, it has to look like this. Uh, and we, we add uh, we add rules and regulations to it. For example, how long should a woman's skirt or a man's hair be? Well, we add to the we add to it, don't we? That's legalism. That's legalism. But a life that's Christ-like is is sexually moral, sexually pure. We don't have to add to it. Uh, unfortunately, we do. Um, we often I, I hear conversations these days about what we should and shouldn't wear at the beach, for instance. Um, I remember uh, taking up a pastoral charge in the valleys for the first time back in 1999, and uh, my girls were 10 and 11 years of age at the time, and they went into a, a worship service wearing T-shirts that had um, uh, there were Spice Girls T-shirts. Oh, pastor's children. <laughs> wearing Spice Girls t-shirts and they were railed and criticised and ridiculed now you see that's legalism that's adding on to the scripture this is descriptive Paul is endeavouring not to be legalistic he's endeavouring to explain if you like what the Christ like life Looks like. And it's a life that's pure. And we need and tag on and become legalistic. International conference speaker Alistair Begg once recalled a time in the early 1960s when as a young boy he was excited to go on his church's annual Sunday school outing. On this particular occasion the outing was on the waters of the River Clyde. During the trip, he overheard a group of men from his church in animated discussion. They were getting all worked up. And uh, this intrigued Alistair Begg as he listened into the debate. He kept hearing, Pertaineth, pertaineth, pertaineth. The woman shall not wear that which is pertaineth to a man. He later discovered, of course, that they were quoting a verse found in Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. Then the young Alistair cottoned on to what all the fuss was about. And a lady, a Sunday school teacher from the church, had turned up for this Sunday school outing on a Saturday morning wearing a pair of slacks. Trousers. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth to the man, they were quoting to themselves. The irony, Alistair Begg thought, was that these men were all wearing kilts. My friends, it's the heart of the principle that matters. And the heart of the principle isn't concerning whether we wear lipstick or makeup or whether we wear slacks or kilts. 
the issue is being godly, sexually pure and faithful. Sadly, legalism has infiltrated the church and we try and dot every I, we try and cross every T, we try and declare what is or is not acceptable and we are guilty of falling like the Pharisees before us fell. And we add at least 613 additional commandments to the law of Moses, which, when it came from Mount Sinai, was declared perfect. Who are we to add to that? The Apostle Paul says, this is descriptive. This is what the Christian life looks like. During my first pastoral charge, I counseled a young guy who, before he'd become a Christian, had had many sexual partners, arguably not unusual in today's culture. And because of that, he'd had a number of children with different partners. I remember on one occasion coming to tell him, uh, him coming to tell me that whilst he was visiting one of his kids, And, of course, the child's mother was there, an ex-partner. One thing led to another, he said, and he fell into sin and slept with a woman again. This happened again and again and again. (laughs) I didn't want to get legalistic with the guy, but there came a point as a pastor where I thought, hang on a minute. (laughs) Tony, I said, Tony, enough is enough. You just don't end up in bed with the same person over and over and over again by accident. You're making decisions. You're making choices. And the normal Christian life is a life that's motivated by a pure heart. And so I did rebuke him quite quite severely. Bless him. He took it on the chin and I like to think made the necessary adjustments. So it's a kind of balance, isn't it? We don't want to become legalistic, of course, but we have to be motivated by that which is right and proper, a pure life before God. And that's what Paul, I think, is getting at here. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desires. But it's not easy, friends. Everywhere we turn these days, uh, temptation's ugly head is, is raised in some way, shape or form. There are TV channels and programs freely available will make my granny blush. Make our spouses embarrassed and ashamed. I remember Steve Brady, the principal of Moreland's Bible College, sharing in Cardiff on one occasion a few years ago now how a friend of his, another college principal, was overseeing a college that offered free internet access to all of its students. Until more than one student went to the principal's office and pleaded with him, please don't do it, we have enough temptation as it is. How true it is. So it's all a question of balance, says the Apostle Paul. He's not endeavouring to be prescriptive, he's endeavouring to describe what does the Christ-like life look like? It's pure. It's pure. Sadly, arguably, 
the world is infiltrating the church and robbing us of our purity, robbing our children of theirs. How sad that is. The list continues. It's, remember, not prescriptive, but descriptive. Verse 5b, he speaks of greed, which is idolatry. (laughs) Greed is everywhere these days, isn't it? Everywhere you look, there is greed. Well, friends, greed is not just a 21st century problem. Covetousness and unchecked desires for power and pleasure and possession... These are all things that Paul calls idolatry, have been plaguing humankind since the fall. Furthermore, even before the fall, it was the archangel Lucifer's greed for position and for power that led him and his host being banished from heaven. Greed is nothing new. But oh, is it not a problem? Paul recognized this. He says, the normal Christ-like life is a life that is not ravaged by greed. We need to be careful, very careful. We don't allow the world's insatiability for more and more and more and more to invade our lives, to taint our priorities and to damage our walk with God. Many Christians, sadly, particularly in this increasingly materialistic world and society, are struggling with greed. Paul suggests that the Christ-like life is a life of self-denial. Next, Paul presents us with what some would consider to be more decent sins. We're going to grade sins, then, you know, the Pernea sins, that, they're pretty awful. Greed, for. But these are the, these are the, these are the white sins. Are they? (laughs) He says, you used, you used to walk in these ways. Now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. They, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Verse 8. It seems that some folks are always on a short fuse, aren't they? (laughs) Including Christians. Always on a short fuse. There are some Christians I won't get in a car with. Especially if they're driving. Because from experience I know that their testimony goes out the window. Anger, anger. It's arguably we can't help help it if we have inherited a, a naturally short fuse, as maybe some of us invariably have. However, as I understand it, my friends, a crucified life avails itself of the grace of God, and the grace of God will temper. The ravages of a troubled soul with the refreshing balm of Gilead. Does it not? If Christ lives in me by his Holy Spirit, then slowly but surely I am being transformed into 
Jesus' likeness into Jesus' image with, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18, with ever-increasing glory. My friends, if that transformation is real, and not just verbal, <laughs> if it's real, if the fruits of the Spirit are manifest in a genuine sense, then these things like anger and rage and malice and slander, filthy language, these can be crucified. They can be nailed to the cross. And even if we have inherited a, a, a father's or a, or a grandfather's foul anger, it can be slain. I'm convinced of it. But boy, oh boy, I've been sitting in the driving seat of some cars with some Christian folk. Wonder how we are when we drive. Some maintain that words don't matter. Jesus, however, said something fundamentally different, something extraordinarily challenging. Jesus maintained that it is by our words that we will be justified or condemned. Ouch. It is by our words that we will be either justified or condemned. Words can help and heal. Equally, they can hurt and hinder. Words can bless and encourage. Equally, they can curse and destroy. When I was in junior school, I had a teacher called Miss Jupitoni. Just her very name sends shivers down my spine. All these years on. Miss Jupitoni. I guess I was misbehaving in class, but I can't really remember. A Miss Jupitori had a cure for miscreants like me. I can still hear her voice. Douglas Allerton, come and put your ugly face into the corner of the front of the class. I was conscious, however, as a young child, of not being particularly pretty and handsome. And it hurt. It hurt. I went home to my mum and I told her, Miss Jupitoni had told me to put my ugly face into the corner. Everyone needs a mum like mine. She went down to that school faster than an exercise missile. HMS Audrey Allen, she went down there. And she gave Miss Jupitoni a piece of her mind. And she said, if you call him to the front, that's one thing. But to call him ugly... Funny enough, Miss Jupitoni treated me like a prince after that. <laughs> Didn't improve my looks, but it improved the way I felt about myself. But words, you see. Wasn't wrong for her to tell me off. Wasn't wrong for her to call me to account and bring me to the front if I had to be exposed. That wasn't necessarily wrong, but to call me ugly face? It hurt. Because those are the very things that kids in the playground call them. It hurts. 
And oddly enough, all these years on, it's the very thing that I remember about my primary school. Oh. It hurts. More seriously, some of us have gone through life carrying all kinds of painful baggage because somebody said something unkind to us. And perhaps we didn't have a mum like mine. We didn't have an HMS Audrey Adam to go in all guns blazing. Words matter. There is an incredible power in words. Granted, God has given us the gift of language, but before we speak, my friends, and increasingly these days, before we write, and before we text, and before we tweet, and before we post on social media, we need to think very seriously about what it is we want to communicate. I was reading this week of an 11-year-old boy who hung himself because of what somebody posted on his Facebook page. Words matter. My mum used to encourage my siblings and I to use an acrostic. Think, T-H-I-N-K, before we spoke. She says, remember, look, before you speak, think. T, she says, Is it true? H, is it helpful? I, is it important? N, is it necessary? K, is it kind? And she said, Douglas, if it's not all five, then shut up. (laughs) We remembered that as siblings. I need to be reminded of it from time to time all these years on. Before I speak, before I type an email, before I post on someone's Facebook page, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it important? Is it necessary? Is it kind? The Proverbs are fantastic, aren't they, when it comes about speaking about words. Proverbs 16, 23 through 24 A wise man's heart guides his mouth (laughs) and his lips promote instruction. Listen, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Isn't that precious? Paul continues, verses 9 through 10, Do not lie to each other. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Paul here is endeavouring to present a picture. He is working with two bookends in mind when it comes to people. These two bookends are the first Adam and the last Adam, that is Christ. Hence, in 1 Corinthians 15, or in Romans chapter 5, he talks about being in Adam, or being in Christ. No grey area with the Apostle Paul notice. It's funny how the modern Christian church has created a grey area. It kind of suits us, doesn't it? (laughs) But no, says the Apostle Paul, you are either one or the other. You are either one bookend in Adam, the old self born in sin, or you are in Christ, the new Adam, born again of the Spirit of God, a new creature, 
The old gone, the new, says Paul, has come. A Christian is someone who is no longer just in Adam, the old self, that self which is sinful and wayward and rebellious towards God. No, Paul says, by the grace of God, a Christian is now in Christ. I love this expression in Greek, Christo. In Christ, and it's, it's all-encompassing. I in Christ, Christ in me. It's a beautiful dynamic. Paul isn't simply giving us a kind of test for, for self-improvement here. He is saying, this is my paraphrase, friends, God has done something radical for you in Christ. Christ died so that he, he might take us out of the old humanity in Adam and put us into the new humanity in Christ. Paul says, if you are in Christ, you don't lie to each other. Why would we? Why on earth would we? We are in Christ. If you are in Christ, then you don't use words, whether verbal or written, to upset your brother and sister in Jesus. If you're in Christ, you do all you can to build up the body of the faith. Not to drag them down. Because you've put off the old self and put on a new self. And therefore you are Christ-like. Car manufacturers, before they launch into a full-scale manufacturing process of a new model of car, produce a prototype. You go to a motor show anywhere? Uh, the, the motor show in the uh, Birmingham NEC arena? Inevitably, there'll be a, a prototype of a, of a manufacturer's proposed new model. The prototype is designed to test the market, to discern the validity of the proposed new model in the market. And following the test, some executive somewhere decides that this prototype is exactly the type of vehicle people want. Later, the cars that come off the production line are exact replicas of the prototype. My friends, God has decided what humanity's shape is going to be. For that he has provided a prototype. <laughs> Christ. Christ. Not the old Adam, the sinful, selfish, wayward, wretched Adam, rather the new Adam. God-centered, obedient, good, kind, considerate, compassionate, loving, faithful. Therefore, to be in Christ is to become authentically human and increasingly human with the prototype Christ in mind. And so Paul here, whilst he is presenting new standards for the Christian, he's not being prescriptive, he's being de demonstrating, demonstrative in a sense, he's demonstrating. He's exemplifying what the Christ-like life is all about. And Christ is the prototype. 
That's why Paul speaks about the fruits of the Spirit. If you were in Christ, he says, then you manifest the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, he says, there is no law. Funny how we attach the law to it, isn't it? Not endeavouring to do that. But what I am suggesting is that Paul here is offering us examples of what the Christ-like life looks like. And he concludes verse 11. He reminds us that here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. Therefore, my friends, we do not judge people by their background, their intelligence, their social class, their colour of their skin. You don't judge Doug Allen because he's a scouser from Liverpool and he's an Englishman for goodness sake. Terrible though that might be. Oh, he's a son of those English oppressors of all those centuries ago. None at all. Because I am in Christ. <laughs> Hallelujah. Not because of anything that I have done, but because of his grace and mercy. I am in Christ. Christ is my prototype. Paul, in effect, is saying that there are only two kinds of people. Those who are in the old Adam and those who are in the new Adam. Those who are in Christ. Those who are without Christ. It makes all the difference. It makes all the difference in this world and all the difference in the next. Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And if he is in us, then it is evident by the way we live. Father, we thank you for these scriptures and uh, reminders to us, for the most part, what our lives should look like. Forgive us, Father, if we take it further and, as the Pharisees of old, add our own laws, rules, regulations, seems right to us. It's not about that, Father. We ought to reflect Christ, first and foremost, quite simply. Help us to do just that. By the anointing of your Holy Spirit in Christ's name we pray. Amen.